Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, and Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalzik, live from San Diego Comic-Con. And I'm joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick, live not from San Diego Comic-Con. No, from my apartment. Which is a better place for you to be. I think we can both agree. Yeah, probably so. And it's at least cooler. In terms of temperature, not in terms of, you know, being cool and hip by being at San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah, it's been very warm. Today, the high is in the 90s. No, nope. like, I think it's the high is 95 in Unacceptable. Unacceptable. Yeah. It's definitely the, the hottest uh, con I've experienced so far. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. It's, it's what, I, I made the mistake of forgetting to sunscreen the back of my cat, like my calves. Oh, no. no. Yeah, they are bright lobster red. And, and so that's like, are you doing your best Ruby impression is what you're telling me to compliment your sister, Sapphire. Basically, yeah. <laughs> my sister is cosplaying as Sapphire today at the con as we record. And pretty much what's fun is that I'm actually cosplaying as Amethyst today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and so I've got the, the long black pants. I was like, hey, well, it's good because then I won't like burn my skin anymore like a, the genius that I was the other day. And um, But the trouble is that I forget how burned my legs are and i like squat down or something or i try to cross my legs and they just yell at me it's it's my own foolish mistake it's what i get for not paying enough attention um so so as people can tell from the fact that it's dominated everything i've said so far i am here at san diego comic-con as we record um so that means that i have not watched a lot of the tv because i'm sitting at the convention right now uh so noel you're gonna pick up the slack for me this week and i appreciate that i'm gonna do so much of the work this week except for the actual work which is the <laughs> editing part which you're still gonna do yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, we, we won't make any mistakes and then we won't have to edit anything that's how it works right it's totally how it works and also yeah. by the way what are words how, how what are and how do they with those things yeah yeah i mean <laughs> oh wait are you doing your trump impression Oh, goodness. Don't even, don't say that. Like, yeah, my Twitter feed's been the RNC, and I've just been like, nope, nope, don't care. Comic-Con. It's been amazing. Yeah. I'm also very excited about the, what I'm cosplaying as tomorrow. Knock on wood, if the, the part of my costume that's supposed to Amazon to me today <laughs> in mm-hmm. San Diego gets to me. Um, and in on a related note, uh, this week, instead of a DVD shelf, uh, I will be talking with uh, David Schwartz, who is the composer of Lady Dynamite, and also, you know, Rest of Development, Northern Exposure. He wrote the theme for Deadwood. He's done a bunch of other, you know, one-season wonders that he shows that we like that probably a lot of people didn't watch. I watched Burnstone. <laughs> I watched the... Uh, I'm pretty sure he did, he did Reaper. He did Benched. Okay. These are fun shows. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Schwartz is very generous with his time, so that'll be coming out today. Um, I think so far, I would give a con update, but we're recording this a little earlier than usual, so there actually hasn't been a lot of con yet. But uh, speaking of con... Con! Yeah, I did uh, line up for uh, for, for a random drawing and managed to get a ticket to see the Star Trek Beyond world premiere, which was amazing. Very cool. Now, was the event amazing or was the movie amazing? The event was amazing. The movie was, I would say, solid to very good. Okay. Um, with the, like, you know, of you're going to see a summer blockbuster Star Trek movie. That's what it wants to be. And I think they do a good job with that. I, it's hard for me to really give a fair review of that because there's so much context. Because we saw it outside 
in beautiful weather with the San Diego Symphony playing the score live. And Very cool. There was a choir as well. Uh, unfortunately, I do not remember the name of the choir. I feel bad for not giving them credit, but they were fantastic. And they had this insane fireworks display before the movie even started, and they had, like, smoke machines, so they had a laser light show. Uh-huh. And, again, with live music, it was ridiculous. It was one of those, like, this only only at San Diego Comic-Con, and only for the, I think there were 250 people. Wow. People who got tickets. Uh, plus one, yeah. So uh, And there were thousands of people in line. So... Yeah, I got lucky. You got very lucky. It was a really lovely evening, and there, the whole cast was there. Um, Conan O'Brien was the like moderator, and so he was pretty fun. And you know, it, it was they had J.J. Uh, Abrams and and um, uh, Justin Lin there as well. Um, Anton Yelchin's parents were there, which was really really very cool. Um, Nichelle Nichols spoke a little bit at the very beginning, but well during the pre-show. So it was just, you know, very particular one-time thing. And that's what can happen at, at Comic-Con sometimes. So it, it was it was very cool. Um, though that also means I missed all the pilots. All those pilots we spent time talking about, Noel, did not see one of them. <laughs> well, that that was that was time well that was time well used. On the upside, at least, they're all being yeah. shown again. <laughs> there is that. They are all being shown again over the course of the weekend. But um that is um, you know, that's to, to come at a later time, more information on that as the con continues, and I figure out exactly how we're going to cover it here on the podcast. But for now, we should get started with our weekend TV, yeah? Yeah, let's do it. So we'll take a break and listen to some Steven Universe music and come back with our week in comedy and reality. Hey, shake a leg. Hey, shake a leg. It's Mr. Gray. It's Mr. Gray. And he's here to spend his dough all over the town. He's got the bucks. I've got the bucks. It's all deluxe. It's all deluxe. When you're dining out with me, it's the finest steak and brie. And if I break a table, it ain't no... Whoa! Just built to my bank. A hundred bucks? Gee, thanks! This week in our week in comedy and reality, we're going to talk about Vice Principals, uh, The Principal, which was its premiere episode, uh, Full Frontal with Samantha B. Cleveland, and a very special Full Frontal special, and then Angie Tribeca, Boys to Dead. And then we're going to talk about uh, two great British baking show episodes, Bread and Desserts. So this week, uh, HBO premiered its new comedy, Vice Principals, which has uh, Walton Goggins and... Danny McBride. Danny McBride, yes, thank you. Um, as vice principals of a school where uh, Bill Murray's principal is retiring due to his sick wife, and they're both gun- gunning for the job, and then neither of them get the job. Um, you had alluded to not being too keen on this project based on a casting decision um and i didn't know what it was uh so i watched the episode with going all right well wh- what's going on here what is this and then we got halfway through the episode and i went oh okay maybe it's this and then at the end of the episode yep it's this so kate why don't you tell us about it <laughs> yeah i was very excited about this show when i heard the the basic premise of walton goggins and danny mcbride are gonna 
you know, spar with each other over the course of 10 episodes. Um, Cause they're both very funny individuals. I really enjoyed Eastbound and Down despite it. Like that's as far out of my wheelhouse as I feel like you can get, <laughs> but I still really had a lot of fun with the character and with the lead character, Kenny Powers and the show in general for almost its entire run. Um, so I was very excited for this one until I found out that no, it's not just these two guys. There is a third character who they team up to take down, and that's the African-American woman who gets the job as principal that they both want. And when I found out, oh, it's going to be two entitled white middle-aged man babies trying to take down a competent, intelligent, and uh, doesn't deserve any of this, uh, accomplished African-American woman, that completely recontextualizes the personalities of these characters, of all of the comedy of the show. Like, that's... The two of them, as these exact same characters fighting with each other, is completely different than the two of them fighting with uh, or, or trying to attack a another person, particularly a person of color, particular or a woman, or in this case, a w- woman of color. Uh, and I, I don't know if they were aware or really considered the way that these characters are affected by the context they're in, by the context of, no, they're not two spoiled babies, you know, who have issues and who have, you know, certain elements of humanity to them taking on each other. It's, no, they're they're trying to destroy somebody else. Yeah, I really had trouble with this. Right, and that was the thing that I ended the episode with. Uh, halfway through the episode, I was mostly just like, this doesn't even feel like a school to me. Like, the idea that this was a school environment where like that was satirizing teachers and administrators just didn't come through in any way shape or form for me it was basically just mcbride and goggins yelling fuck you at each other for like 20 minutes and i just went i don't know that this is a show and then they team up at the end of the episode and i just went oh so they're going to team up to take down the competent well-qualified black lady well this will be great And like you, I'm not entirely sure that there was an understanding that they were going to do play this this way, or if there was an understanding and they're looking to lampoon white male privilege in some way. We'd have to see like another episode, but I'm not entirely convinced I want to see another episode of this, Um, just based on the premise alone of what this turned into. So I'm not feeling particularly optimistic. And like you, I was feeling kind of good about this show just from a Goggins perspective of getting to see him do some comedy. And he and McBride are both good in this. I just don't know that the writing overall was really up to snuff for a lot of this. And now I'm just concerned about its premise. Yeah, I was really excited to see Walton Goggins play a different character. And he's still kind of playing Boyd. Yeah, exactly. He's playing the same character, just in, again, in a comedy now, instead of an hour-long drama. And with or, much different clothes, but still very dapper. But still very dapper, very sly, um, yeah, very deceitful and self-serving, and yet charming for those who don't know to look through it. I mean, this is a, this is a very, very similar character, so that was disappointing as well. The guy has range. Yeah. Even his physicality is very still red boy to me in a lot of instances, which was weird to see. Yeah. 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 And and the costuming of like the skinnier pants and and everything, too. It felt it still felt very boyd. So, I mean, that's not the fault of these writers, but 
it's disappointing when you're hoping you're going to get a completely new uh, approach and a new performance from this this very talented actor. Uh, I mean, I really like what we get with trying to humanize the Danny McBride character. His uh, like his backstory of his his dad was a principal and he's trying you know he wants his kid to look up to him and everything. I think that actually really did a lot to to connect us to him. Uh, I don't know that they're going to put any effort like that into the Goggins character though. I mean, it's a possibility. Uh, it's too soon to tell, but I feel like the McBride character is very much going to be our central f- focus for the most part, just based on this episode. But who knows? I mean, next week's episode may just be more of Goggins' character-centric. So do you think you're going to watch more of this? Or is this something you'll wait to hear from other people if it gets better? Or what do you, how do you think you're going to approach it? I may try and do a few more episodes of it uh, since I've got the press access to it. Um, I may like do two or three um, next week and see how it goes. But I'm not feeling super, super confident about how this is going to play out for them. And it feels like another sign of HBO's struggle to develop some new pro- new programming. And I'll be interested to see how basically their Westworld ends up doing at this point because I'm not seeing any like big new programming that's really standing out apart from the night of but that feels like its own different animal compared to the rest of its slate yeah I'd agree with that um yeah I I still haven't seen Stranger Things so I need to watch Stranger Things before I watch more of this is where I'm at that is that is the correct choice (laughs) <laughs> also, this week we have and we're recording before uh, we've had a chance to see any, but BoJack Horseman season three is out, and I loved season one and season two, so I certainly I'm not going to make time for Vice Principals until I've had a chance to watch all of BoJack Horseman season three. So that's sort of uh, yeah, that's where we're at. Peak TV. Well, then I'll check in next week with at least uh, thoughts on the next episode or two for Vice Principals. Then I will okay. make that sacrifice. Well, thank you. You're I look welcome. forward to, to hearing how it goes. <laughs> Um, so next next up was uh, Full Frontal with Samantha B. They had two episodes this week. They had their usual episode in the New York studio, uh, Cleveland, which was about um, the Republican National Convention, which is also happening this week. And then they had a very special Full Frontal special, which was about them traveling to the convention, but basically only getting to Pennsylvania <laughs> um, on a big bus that they bought from someone who had the Herman Cain bus. Uh, so you got a chance to watch Cleveland, correct? Yes, I yeah. unfortunately have not had a chance to see the special yet, but I will be watching it eagerly. I didn't know it was happening until I watched you know, the, the episode from this Monday and saw yeah. the ads. I was super stoked. Uh, but I thought it was a lot of fun, and I certainly enjoyed the fact just from when it aired, like people were turning off from the RNC to watch her talk about the RNC, and that is super game for me. Right, and I mean, I've been watching the RNC for most of this week in between watching other um, shows, and it's just been, I don't know that comedy is necessarily going to solve any of my larger malaise (laughs) about what's uh, happening in Cleveland right now. Um, So, well, it was nice to watch someone lampoon it. It was also just like, there's not enough lampooning in the world that's going to make this feel better and that's kind of where i was with cleveland um the the full frontal special which i there's one great bit that i can't give away because it's so great um and so just kind of it tickled me 
enough that I don't want to give it away for you. But it's pretty good. Um, it's very much um, in the vein of her on, on location, I'm interviewing someone type of thing. So she interviews a couple of residents of Pennsylvania. Um, she talks to a, gosh, I want to say a state senator. It could be a state 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 representative, but it's a state senator or state representative. Someone in the Pennsylvania State House, basically. And he talks about... In particular, like this was the big, this was the big, really good part of the episode uh, special was he talks a lot about state legislatures having to be bipartisan and his particular experience is emphasizing the bipartisan nature and how generally just kind of disgusted he is with politics at a national level, emphasizing divides as opposed to unity and how the convention, how he was worried that the convention in particular was really going to emphasize that particular issue and considering that this was probably filmed like right before the convention kicked off uh boy was he correct considering that the convention has more so been an anti-hillary uh rally than a pro-trump convention it's been pretty much exactly that yeah that sounds really interesting and i think the you know the way that full frontal and sam b specifically uh as it's you know head uh, creative has forefronted local and state uh, politics and um, the off-year elections and all of that. I think that is really great. So this is in keeping with that. And yeah. um, this idea that it's not just the big spectacle of the presidential election every four years. This is your life and this is happening all around you at a very specific local, uh, changeable, malleable level, level. So when it feels like the the country is going in a direction you don't like or you know there are the politicians that we hear about are intractable um you can make a difference and the way you make a difference is through those local and state uh, legislatures so i think that's a uh, yeah i look forward to, to checking in on that great no i look forward to your thoughts with that we'll move on to the other tbs comedy that we both got to watch this week and that was andrew tribeca they had boys to dead this week uh which had a split uh, divide between Angie finally catching up with uh, Sergeant Pepper and then Giles and Tanner investigating the murder of a reunited boy band uh, member. Uh, so, Kate, I'm just going to assume that you had boy band posters up in your room when you were growing up. Um, I'm going to guess 98 Degrees because you've always struck me as a 98 Degrees fan. But if it was Backstreet Boys or NSYNC, I won't judge. But we all know it was 98 Degrees. Yeah, I have never had a boy band poster on a wall, ever. So that's hilarious to me. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> and I've never really understand the impulse to put up teen heartthrob posters or anything like that. You had Bach posters up, didn't you, then? Not, not Bach. I mean... Oh. No, I mean, I shared my room with my sister, um, okay. so we didn't really have any posters. But, like, the first poster I wanted to get was, like, a Shakespeare play all the, you know, in yeah, one poster. Yeah, I remember form. those, yeah. Like, yeah, like that. That's the kind okay. of stuff that I was more into. But I did really enjoy this episode, um, particularly the casting of the boy band I thought was delightful. Yes. So, uh, Joy Mack and, oh, man, in uh, sync guy, right? Or at 98 Degrees? Where, he was in sync, right? Which one are you thinking of? The uh, the the funny one. Are you are you thinking that was Joey Fatone? No. Okay, good because that was no. It's um, not Joey Fatone, yeah. but it is another boy band member. 
Yeah, I don't know which one. I um, don't remember his name, so that shows you know, my memory of. Uh, but I thought that was really fun. A fun yeah. way to do it. It was. Um, it was error. Yeah, it was really the only thing that was kind of keeping me in the episode, apart from also that really random Joe Jonas cameo um, of him showing up as someone who could have infiltrated the boy band, but he doesn't even really say anything. That was that was kind, kind of, of yeah. Amazing. He's just there. He's just yeah, there. Um, but. As much as I kind of enjoyed those type of things, um, I was also just kind of bored by the episode. Um, I Like we've kind of talked about, I wasn't particularly interested in Trebekah going after Sergeant Pepper. And the reveal that he's responsible for mayhem and everything, I just went, meh, type of thing. I just, I didn't care, and I'm not quite sure what he's after with this, I guess. Is the thing, though, I did enjoy them walking through the park as all these Woods-related horror movie things were happening. Um, so I enjoyed the, that aspect, but I just didn't care. And the boy band stuff just took a little while to get going for me. So I was just like, eh, this is. I appreciate what they're doing, and I appreciate the joke of the pretty boy wanting desperately to be the bad boy. And where all that went, including to a crossbow, which is always funny, I think. Um, But I just kind of went, this is, this was fine, but there wasn't anything that really hit some buttons for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the stuff with um, uh, Sgt. Pepper was very miss for me on the hidden miss, you know, scale. Um, And by the way, it's uh, Chris Kirkpatrick from Insane. Oh, okay. Okay. The other, other, I should and then know we that. had uh, Aaron Carter yeah. in there as well as PT Cruiser. Um, uh, but yeah, so for for me, like like we've said all season, the the Sgt. Pepper stuff is just it's not really interesting for me. It's not. It feels like Rashida Jones is really stuck with this storyline. Yeah, and stuck is an accurate word. She's just, you know, constantly being more dramatic, but I just want to see ridiculous stupid silly comedy like i want to i would like love the show to go back to having someone scream in every you know at the end of every credits yes. <laughs> you know yeah so be we'll nice. see what they're gonna do but yeah if the like the boy band stuff was working more for me than it was for you based on just the stunt casting of it and the interactions of the different characters but uh, um yeah if, if the if that wasn't working for you i can see this being a disappointing or the very the most mediocre episode yeah and it's I think it's definitely in that vein for me. I'm. Uh, it was probably just like a topicality issue of the jokes not being something I can totally relate to and get, and I'm I'm sure that's what was happening here, and that's fine. I mean, not everything's for everyone. Yeah, and hopefully, I don't know. Uh, this feels like it'll be a se- season long thing, and hopefully they'll wrap it up. And so for season three, we'll get something new, and they'll hopefully get back to the more of the the tone of the first season. At least that's what I would like to see. Yeah, I think I would be much happier with a broader slapstick approach. This has been still solid, but not as hasn't been as naked gunny, and that's been that's been kind of sad for me. Yeah, yeah, we'll see if they get back to that. But um, I don't know. For me, at least that wraps up the weekend comedy and underwhelming weekend comedy. Right, but on the upside. Our week in reality had a lion made out of bread cake. It's so good. It's so good, but he didn't win for it either, which was ridiculous. Well, but I actually appreciated that because it's like, this was amazing, but it's not just one thing. You have to 
do well in all three. I, I, I thought I like that they if they weren't going to give him the win, I like that they gave him a special award for this is just ridiculous. Right, and that and that's fair, but it was also I think so ridiculous that it should have won it. We're talking about the Great British Bake Off, and we're talking Great British Baking Show rather. Sorry, Pillsbury. And we're talking about episode three, which was bread. And Paul uh, made a bread sculpture for the showstopper that was in the form of a lion's head and, like, the front with, like, paws out. And it was something that I didn't think you could actually do with bread. Yeah. Well, when Paul (laughs) Hollywood is like, yeah, I wouldn't have tried to do this. Yes, exactly. And Paul's, like, the king of breads, right? Yeah, his dad was a baker. He grew up surrounded by baking so okay. yeah right um but then at the same time it was just like it showed exactly why this show's great is that he clearly had a ton of time to put this together to figure out how it was going to work and how it was going to look and he just spent basically the entire week obviously working this and making sure that it was perfect that it was on point and that just stood in stark contrast to dorit doing her unmade bread bed which was cute but the woman basically didn't prepare anything for this week she just decided to wing it and i just went dorit you don't have to wing it you're given an entire week to do things why are you winging this well who knows what's going on in her personal life during that week but they find out what the challenges are right when they're cast yeah. And so that's when they initially come up with their ideas. Um, so they had more than a week even to, yeah. to plan this stuff. So normally it's like you get the idea and you think you'd like elaborate on it down and get more, much more specific over the course of that week right before you're going to do it. But yeah, it was just, it was not her week. And I, you know, as much as I enjoyed Dread on the show, you know, I think it was time for her to go. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, did anything else stick out to you in Bread? Um, I, I did think that Ian's flower pot uh, was actually pretty cool looking, um, but I was just kind of still underwhelmed by the fact that contestant Paul made a lion, Kate. <laughs> yeah, I mean you're not really gonna go, you're not really gonna top the lion. The 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 dress form or whatever that we got yes. from Flora yeah. was that one I had a little trouble with, be, just because I think uh, the with the proportions of the halves were were off. Yeah, or maybe maybe it, for me it didn't really translate. Watching it on the show, I must have looked much more impressive in person. I think because to me yeah. it kind of just looked like oh, you know what you're trying to do there. Um, and could I do better? Of course not. No. <laughs> but it, so it's still very impressive. But for me, it wasn't nearly as um, as specific and as uh, as as artistic as far as like feeling like an art piece as yeah. opposed to bread trying to be art, you know, that right. we, as what we got with certainly the lion, but even the flower pot. Yeah. And even like, uh, Nadia's, uh, snake charmer basket, which I really liked just from the detail on the snake and the color on that snake looked amazing. Um, Absolutely. I, and then yeah. like, and then using that as flavoring too, at the same time. Yes. And, and you know, it, that's one of those, if that, if she had gotten the bake just right, I think could have edged out the flower pot. Yes. I think so too. How'd you feel about desserts? Well, okay, first of all, um, what in the world is a, a Spanish wind tort? Because I, I, when, when, even after the, like, they reve- pulled off the dome and revealed that, I just went, is that just, that's just stacks of 
ganache. That's all this. Not ganache, but um, whatchamacallit. Sugar. Yeah, it's just it's just sugar. You you guys just did sugar stacks, and it's just, why? First of all, I mean, I I say why was this hard, but then I'm just like I wouldn't have been. A, I didn't. I can't even. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. I'm pronouncing Wintort correctly, <laughs> but I'm not pronouncing the other one correctly. I'm not even sure. And it was meringues, not ganache. But, meringues. Yeah. Yeah. But it was just like, mm, I understand that this was a very technical-driven technical in that they had to do two types of meringue, then stacked in, in rings. But I was just kind of like, mm, it, it just didn't ring as like a dessert to me. Maybe because it just, it was just meringues, Kate. It was just meringues. <laughs> Fair enough. Am I like off base on that? Well, I have struggled with meringues at various points okay. in significant ways. Uh, for example, uh, the time that I made back the baked Alaska most recently was several years ago, uh, and it was a shit show. Uh, <laughs> the I couldn't get. I made the meringue. I swear, no, like four times. Yeah. And I was very careful. I made sure I cleaned up the bowl completely so that the like, but the I just couldn't get it to the to whip up the right way and and then have the peaks and like it just. It won. The meringue won that day. Uh, so we just had dough of flavored ice creams and sorbets layered inside of each other that were supposed to be spectacularly meringued. And then we're, so, like, I never take meringue for granted, even though theoretically it shouldn't be that challenging. Um, and, and when you see them all lined up, it's like, yep, this what I, I this just really for me highlights how, how much the technical uh, does it really show you everybody on the evil on the even playing field yeah yeah i think that's i think that's fair uh what did you think about the cheesecake showstopper um i was i this is where i admit that i'm not a big fan of cheesecake um and uh, <gasps> yeah cheesecake's delicious Yes, I know. I've been uh, ridiculed for uh, much of my life for not particularly caring for cheesecake. Um, my mother um, is a big cheesecake fan. She really enjoys cheesecake. So I thought of her a lot during this particular showstopper and trying to think about which episode, which ones that she would enjoy. But uh, what stood out for you with the cheesecake showstopper? Well, for me, I mean, I really like cheesecake. Yeah. Um, and I've got we've got some family members who uh, have celiac, so because of that right having a gluten-free crust with a cheesecake has become a much more common dessert it used to be a very like a very um special event or just we did they didn't we didn't make cheesecake a lot growing up because my mom makes an insanely delicious cheesecake but it's huge like it uses mm -hmm. eight bricks of cream cheese that's, it's enormous that that seems excessive kate <laughs> that's a lot it of does, and then you have this tiny sliver and it's amazing <laughs> Yeah, it's really good, but it also is a lot. It, it, you're right, it is a lot. Um, so because of that, I'm very particular on the kind of cheesecake I like, and I feel like often when you see cooking and baking shows, there isn't enough. Like it would be nice to see them spend like a minute or two minutes and descri and describe the different kinds of cheesecake yes. that exist and and why. Like what is New York style cheesecake? What is this? What is that? And the different cooking processes or like the texture that you want. Cause there's different textures that you want. Um, so, cause for me there, yeah, when, when, I think not all cheesecake is created e equal and yet I don't really see that reflected in most cooking shows. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would have liked more of, more of that as opposed to just like it's cheesecake with different stuff thrown in it. Yeah. And that's, that is what this basically ended up being. It was, 
I've got berries. I've got fruit. I've got soda pop, uh, which was actually, I think. That even, was so, that was super cool. It was super cool. Like the freestanding like soda can with the, um, was it funded coming out? It wasn't funded. It was something else. It's something. Yeah. And they, it may have actually been another well, meringue. It wasn't an Italian meringue. Yeah, I wanted yeah, to say it was meringue. Yeah, I, I think it was, in fact, an Italian meringue. So poor Nadia ended up making three different meringues that weekend. Uh, but no, it looks so cool. Um, and I was really, really impressed with that. And then Ian won again. And I'm kind of getting tired of Ian winning a little bit. Okay. He's won three in a row at this point. Um, but at the same time, of the cheesecakes that were made... I would probably have tried his first just because they sounded and looked delicious. Yeah, they really, really did. Um, like you, you get me when you decide to do spicy and herby together in a cheesecake. And I'm just like, I would try that. And I'm not even that big. I'm not, like I said, I'm not that fond of cheesecake and I would try that because it sounded amazing. Yeah. Well, I remember a week or two ago, you said that you had uh, strong money on the winner being one of the women. Yes. Do you still feel strong about that? Or, you, or is Ian edging up in your, your rankings? Ian and Alvin are both kind of edging up a little bit. Because Alvin, um, even though he did a um, really poor job with the wind tort, um, he still did... Um, he's still, I think, showing a lot of creativity, which I think is making a big difference for him. And I think that's helping. So I'm still leaning towards, like, um, Nadia and Ugne, like, coming up from behind. I don't think Flora's got any staying power, but I'm feeling confident about Nadia or Ugne coming coming back and, like, dethroning Ian. But I also don't think Matt's along for this world either. <laughs> okay. Well, it, I will, you know, plead the fifth. And, right, because uh, you already know how the, all this plays out, and you're just, like, chuckling behind your microphone going, it's 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 going to be Paul, no, you're just totally underestimating him. <laughs> yeah, so, no, I'm still feeling confident that it'll be a woman, but the, that, that the field of women left on the show is becoming much smaller, so. <laughs> yeah, there's that, there's that indeed. Um, okay, well. Then Noel, what wins your week in comedy and reality? Uh, it's 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 still the Great British Baking Show, Kate. Um, in part because even though I really enjoyed uh, everything that Sam B was doing, I also just made the mistake of watching the RNC convention. So I just went, no amount of humor is going to make this okay. So, but you know what will make it okay? A lion made out of bread, Kate. A lion made out of bread. <laughs> can solve the world world's ills uh that feels yeah. about right um i will give it to sam b split yeah. the love here a little bit but uh it, i yeah it's really hard for me to top bread i think it's a really really very good episode and you just love to see that you love to see someone just pull out something out that you didn't know that they could do and maybe they didn't know that they could do yeah. it but he, paul poured himself into that and he was he was like i i know that i can bake and i have not demonstrated that enough and i want to show that i deserve to be here and so to see him pull that off to see and to see him get the praise and accolades he deserved for that um was really wonderful to see so i, I thought i thought uh, you know it's been a really good season so far on baking show so i'm glad and i and i know to expect that so i'm glad that you're enjoying it too yes i am thoroughly um, so now we will take a break and come back with more Steven Universe and then our weekend genre and drama. We'll be right back after this. I was fine with the men 
who would come into her life now and again. I was fine, cause I knew that they didn't really matter until you. I was fine when you came and we fought like it was all some silly game over her who she'd choose after all those years i never thought i'd lose it's over isn't it isn't it isn't it over it's over isn't it isn't it isn't it over you won and she chose you and she loved you and she's gone it's over isn't it why can't i move on uh this week in genre and drama uh first up we've got steven universe and it was a steven bomb this week kate uh we have steven floats which you and emily had already discussed um whoops but we can uh we can we can mention it because Stephen Floats is a cute episode, and I'll weigh in like real quick with my thoughts, which was, "Hey, it was a cute episode." But we also had Drop Beat Dad, uh, Mr. Greg, which I imagine is what we'll end up spending all our time talking about, and Too Short to Ride, which is the extent of what's aired so far this week, but also airing this week. But we'll discuss next week is the new Lars and Beach City Drift, which, oh my God, if Stephen Universe does a Fat and Fast and the Furious homage, I may just lose it. Um, and then in drama this week, we had The Night Of, uh, Subtle Beast, uh, Greenleaf, which I'll talk about, uh, briefly, had One Train May Hide Another, and then we'll close things out this week with Unreal Ambush. Um, so, Kate, uh, Steven Universe, uh, best Steven Bomb ever, or best Steven Bomb ever? I really like the Steven Bomb, but I do still think I like the Steven's Birthday Bomb. Okay. A little better. Sure, sure. That that was a really good Stephen Bomb. Yeah, I feel like that one's a little, just like the average is slightly higher here. Yeah. Um, but I mean, and it also helps that when I'm thinking about the Stephen Bomb, I don't really think about Stephen Floats as part of it because they aired it in France like a month ago, so we yes. all watched it <laughs> on YouTube a month ago. Um, but yeah, the the uh, I thought it was really fun. I, I like we are like we already said like I already said with Emily. Um, Steven and Floats is charming and all of those lovely things we love about the show. Um, this, the, the sour cream episode was, was pretty fun and, uh, a nice kind of change of pace. It's nice to see some of those characters we haven't seen in a while. And I always just enjoy Brian Fossein. So that right. was cool. And, um, and why wouldn't you want to try guacamole soda? That sounds want amazing. To try guacamole soda. Absolutely. <laughs> You know, absolutely. And I mean, Mr. Greg, it's just, it's, it's so too good, good for so this glad. world. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad that they spent an episode on Pearl and Greg and that Stephen, like, has known that this is a thing that they need to address and they need to do, like, take care of and he needs to repair this relationship and that they, they are able to and they can. They just, you know, are still both dealing with so much pain, particularly Pearl. I love how Pearl does not get simpler the more we understand about her she gets more complex the more we understand about her and her relationship with with rose quartz gets more complex like and we the God, show does relationship with steven just took on a whole new level in one line kate in one line <laughs> but we don't we don't know how rose felt and they don't try to tell us how rose yeah. felt and i love that yeah no it's just 
I mean, this entire episode of Mr. Greg, um, do you want to talk about Too Short to Ride real quick first, or... Oh, yes, that one also existed and was fun. Right, yeah, no, That's that about was, all I have to say. Yeah, it was, it was fun. Peridot has telekinesis. Okay, back to Mr. Greg. Is basically the appropriate response to Too Short to Ride. The other appropriate response to Too Short to Ride is, when does Amethyst get to go on her uh, life-changing car trip vacation ride with Greg? Um... <laughs> But no, we'll circle back to Mr. Greg because that was the big standout for the bomb, the Stephen bomb so far. Um, it's just, I loved how this episode was just very musical from the get-go. Um, just lots of little songs from the start and then uh, lots of like really fun Broadway-themed type of songs, which was appropriate considering they went to Empire State slash Empire City uh, away yeah, from well, Jersey. It's totally Hello Dolly, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's so fun, and I love that everyone got matching suits and that Pearl eventually kind of got into it. But then just, like you said, I just loved how Pearl is continually continuously layered even as we find out more about her and just how much of the past she's still, like, clinging to and that she just can't let go of in any way, shape, or form and how much that's, like, she's realizing how much this is tearing her apart basically and that even though she's kind of realizing it it's not going to be like better immediately because just because she and greg dance together which was just so wonderful and symbolic and based just on how important dance is for the gems that oh kate this episode was so good (laughs) well and of course she's in the tux and he's in a white bathrobe yes loved it yeah it's great because she she gets to lead, but oh, Kate, that in, her entire song, like I finished the episode and then just rewound my recording of it back to watch it again, um, because I was just like there was some other stuff like I was I basically just wanted to hear that line about having to care about her son again, um, just to go like oh, because I'll be honest, like that that facet of the gems taking care of Steven and plus Pearl's relationship with Rose just never really registered for me and as a potential thing. And then the, like, like I said, that one line just immediately complicated everything that she's done with Steven at that point. And I just kind of like, I didn't like lose it in like a crying sobbing sort of way, but I just kind of lost it in like a mental sort of way of like, Wow, Pearl's just really, really, really complicated. And I love that. And I've I've always really loved Pearl. She's always been very consistently my favorite character on the show. But it was just like, whole new levels. And I think the other big thing about Pearl's song in particular was the fact that this was as close as I think that the show can come to being very explicit about how Pearl feels about Rose without being, like, very explicit. <laughs> Um, in that same vein that we re- alluded to with like um, Princess Bubblegum and uh, Marceline on Adventure Time and the fact that they're not allowed to be more explicit about how that relationship was in the past uh, because of various censorship issues uh, within other countries has been my understanding because um, I, d- I don't quite know how Cartoon Network factors into that but Mr. Greg feels very much like a Guys, I don't know how I can make this any clearer. Rose and Rose and Pearl, maybe not exactly best gal pals who were fighting a war together. 
Yeah, no, definitely. And, and and also showing that Greg knows, you know, like Greg's thing about, I know how you felt about her and I didn't, I didn't care. Yeah. I didn't care. And, and, and because it's, it's, there's no, of course, as you would expect from Steven Universe, there's no judgment there. There's understanding and acceptance. And like, it just, they're just two people. And I, I love it. It's, it's beautiful. And the stuff that, you know, having another Pearl, but then having her see other, see other people overhear that, you know, this idea of she wants to think she's like sort of suffering in silence, you know, and, like you know stiff upper lipping it for the rest of the team but it's like no we we all know we all know that this is what you've been dealing with for years now for 10 15 years now and we want to help you we want you to not feel this pain we want you to be you and to feel what you what you need to feel what you what you what is true to you but we also would you know like you to be able to be happy and not still hunted by this and so to see to see her like accept not necessarily help, but a conversation, a dialogue on yes. this from other people was really, really lovely. Yeah, it was. It was really significant. And what I really like is that the show will like circle back to this in a little while, maybe. But it doesn't need to like make this like a big Pearl-centric arc or anything. It's just like we did in like 11 minutes with most shows take like three or four episodes to suss out and work through. And this is just the beginning of them doing that probably, but there's still so much room for more complexity and layers to all of these characters. Like, I mean, just Greg alone, like they've been doing a really nice job of adding things to Greg really consistently where it was really easy just to write Greg off as the bumbling dad who shows up with his farmer's tan to occasionally check in on Steven while he's being raised by these three aliens. (laughs) But he's just, he's becoming, he's consistently becoming a richer character, and I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I agree. And um, I like that they gave him $10 million. And the the vacation would have been pricey, but not $10 million pricey. There's no way that vacation was $10 million. And I, I love the fact that Steven was just like, Dad, I really love you, but you live in a van. Uh, you could maybe buy a house with this. <laughs> yeah, and he didn't think of that. No, it's so great. <laughs> My last thought on the the Stephen Bomb, and specifically on the Pearl stuff that we get, is like you'd said, we don't get we get in ten minutes what another show would take three or four episodes to do. Other sh- another show would take like an entire arc to to really explore this. But the thing that would happen is if you did that, if Stephen Universe was like, we're going to do a whole Stephen Bomb just about Pearl and just about just about her relationship with Rose and, and all of that and their history. If you if you do that, then you need to have an answer. The arc needs to have an ending. Yes. And this is something that can't have an answer or have an ending and just be done and resolved forever. That's not how that's not how emotions work. That's not how relationships work. So I really I really appreciate that that's a, that this is the approach that they take on the show. And also the same thing on an adventure time too, where the relationship stuff will come up with these different characters. Like for example, uh, uh, Simon, um, or Marcy and, um, and, and Bubblegum, like we, like you had mentioned, and it'll come up for an episode. And they'll kind of touch on it and check in and see where things are, but they don't ever try to answer or solve or resolve relationships on these shows. And, and I think that's, I, you know, I think that's a really smart way to do it, but I think it's also a constructive way to, to 
format children's television because because that, that's what I keep coming back to for Steven Universe is that theoretically this is a kids show so I'm always thinking about what lesson is this teaching kids and what is this opening their their minds to that they don't even necessarily realize and so I like that they don't answer and fix and resolve relationships on this show for the most part so no we love a, you Steven Universe that's a really significant point to make I think and you're spot on yeah we love you, Steven Universe. Thank you for existing. I, I ended up watching... I want to say two... I ended up watching Too Short to Ride after Ted Cruz spoke. And it was so nice to check in, like, get a dose of humanity. Uh, <laughs> after watching the RNC for, like, an hour and a half. And then get 11 minutes of humanity and emotional well-being, basically, from... A cartoon show. I felt really good about my life decisions as an adult that day. <laughs> Next up, uh, we've got The Night Of, which had their second episode, Subtle Beast. Uh, you got to watch mm, some of this, yes? Yeah, I got to see some of this before my Wi-Fi went out <laughs> at the airport. And okay. I could not finish watching on HBO. Um, so how was this episode? Uh, it was it was a good episode. Uh, the episode uh, Subtle Beast focuses is a two pronged beast episode, I think, um, because one part Subtle Beast refers to Box, the detective, who's working uh, Nas's case, um, but and how he goes about investigating, how he thinks through. Um, Things and also very importantly, how he conducts his investigation, how he talks to Nas, and doing everything just within the boundaries of what's acceptable and not only what's acceptable, but what's legal. Like, he doesn't put a toe over the line, but he just kind of nudges the line with his toe, which is why he's a subtle beast. He's not doing anything wrong per se when he's listening in on Nas's conversation with his parents because he's allowed to do that but it's also just another way for him to gain information after john stone the john turturro character has told nas not to talk to anyone but of course nas is going to talk to his parents because it's his parents um though nas is aware enough to switch over to speaking in their um into gosh i'm gonna get the language wrong not english not english um I'm assuming whatever the predominant language is in Pakistan, and I'm coming off as severely ignorant at the moment, which I apologize for. Um, but it also refers to John. The title also refers to Stone himself because he's deeply, deeply subtle. Like, I mean, he's doing this very much as a right place, right time sort of situation to like make a name for himself type of thing. And he's seeing Nas as a way to build his reputation, to build himself up, and everyone's kind of aware of it, except for Nas and his parents, who are both both basically just like, thank goodness someone cares about us enough to help us. And there's just... there, Stone is very clearly like wanting to do the best he can, maybe, I think. But I'm not entirely convinced that he's going he's going to be able to do everything that he can just because of how really thorny and complicated this case is going to get and someone even asks him up his um i'm assuming his ex-wife um even asks him if he can 
do this, basically. And I guess we'll see. Um, but he's good in court, but it's also kind of a good in court in an ambulance chaser. I've rehearsed this kind of thing a gazillion times, good in court type of approach. So we'll see how this goes. Um, but I like the glimpses we got into his life, his dealing with eczema on his feet and wearing sandals all the time. I mean, I developed eczema on my hands about three years ago, and I'm always thankful that it's not on my feet. As much as I curse my hands, I'm always glad it's not on my feet, knock on wood. Um, so I'm still continuing, still very interested in what Night Of is going to be doing. I'm not excited about Nas being in Rikers. Um, and the whole rigmarole that that's going to create. But at the same time, it fits in with the show's mentality of showing how this case is basically going to proceed from beginning to end, I'm assuming. And I'm interested in seeing that. And I've been talking for like five minutes, I think, or less than that. So I'm going to shut up. What Of what you saw, how are you feeling so far? Well, you mentioned the details that we are getting uh, with these characters, specifically Stone. And another one that immediately left to mind was when he's emptying out his pockets and you get his, like, business cards. They're so ambulance chaser. Did you notice those? Oh, God. They were, they were like, the things that you get when you order business cards from, like, Office Depot. And yeah. they're just, like, massively discounted. And with the blue Starburst gradient type of background. Oh, they were so great. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that attention to detail. And uh, what the part that I did see, we you know, I got to see the fun. No, don't just shut up. Why yeah. are you still talking? Don't talk. Don't say anything to anyone ever. Um, I thought that scene was as, as entertaining as we were hoping it would be. And uh, I look forward to catching the rest, with, catching up the rest of it. Um, it didn't strike me as visually and as tonally uh, distinct this episode as yeah. uh, the first episode, but I'm only a little bit of the ways in. So I'm only like a third of the way into the episode. So I don't really want to say too much more um, until I've seen the entire thing. But based on what you're saying, I look forward to checking it out. Yeah. Aesthetically, I think it's a big push was in the open and then it settled into more distinct rhythms. Um, sorry, not more distinct, but more comfortable rhythms. Um, and there was even just more uh, non-diegetic music this week. Um, than there was last week. Uh, so, yeah, I'm just, I'm feeling interested in a lot of this, um, but this idea of the right place, right time thing just kind of reinforced the whole um, aspect of the their fates are intertwined type of thing music that we talked a little bit about last week, or sorry, two weeks ago, I guess. Um, and that aspect of it, I think, just came through a little harder when they he kept the episode kept hammering home that point yeah yep well uh yeah I, like i said i look forward to catching up and, and we'll talk about it next week when i uh, will have seen first three and yeah. we can chat about about where it's at uh, almost a halfway point great sounds terrific um uh next up is green leaf which is one train may hide another you didn't get a chance to watch this yet um and i thoroughly encourage you to do that um, as soon as you can. So I'm going to talk very broadly about this episode. Um, so maybe we can circle back next week after you've had a chance to watch it. Um, but this episode is in focused entirely on Mac, uh, the uh, uncle, the lieutenant in the church, uh, played by Gregory Allen Williams. Um, and it's very much from his perspective. I mean, the rest of the cast kind of weaves in and out 
of his day on this day that he's receiving the Memphis Man of the Year award. And it's everyone else is like coming to him with things. He's putting out fires. He's dealing with um, he's dealing with charities hiring of the new um, new like chorus chorus leader and all this sort of stuff. He's just doing all of it. We get an insight into his mental state quite clearly, and we get an insight into how he operates and what he's done to get to where he is and who he's left behind and who has been and who he and also Lady May for that matter have left behind and I'm it's a really really great episode um and I can't wait for you to watch it um but yeah this was by far and away I think one of their better episodes so far which was compelling to see because it was Again, it was an episode with most of the Greenleaf family in the background. And this one guy who basically makes sure the trains run on time for them to basically be able to have all this drama is having significant amounts of drama himself. And it was really, really interesting and a really good look into basically the show's antagonist's perspective and how he operates. So I'm really eager for you to watch it because I want to talk about this with you. <laughs> well, I'm eager to watch it because that is super intriguing, everything yeah. you're saying. So, yeah, I'm, I did not necessarily anticipate a Mac-centric episode or, or something certainly something following his perspective. So, yeah, that's, that's an interesting choice, and I look, for, I look forward to it. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about it next week. Yes, great. I'm excited. Uh, so then we'll wrap things up. Uh, Kate hasn't had time to watch Mr. Robot, so we'll circle back to Mr. Robot uh, next week as well. I guess we'll discuss two episodes, which will be so much fun for me. Uh, um, but I have plenty of thoughts on episode three of um, Mr. Robot, but we'll circle back to that next week. So we'll wrap things up with Unreal with Ambush. Um, and since I feel like I've been talking a bit, Kate... Why don't you talk, talk to, to us about, about ambush, ambush a little bit? bit. And, um, yeah, yeah and then all the way, way in about, about how I felt about this particular episode. <laughs> well, there's some stuff that I really liked and some stuff that I think is very typical of the season so far. So, uh, I, I really liked, uh, I don't know his name, the, the producer guy. How who, can you forget Coleman Wasserman every week? Oh, no, the producer, oh. not the showrunner, Coleman Wasserman, oh, okay. but the producer, there's Braids, who I want to say is Madison. Right? Oh, yeah, Madison. And then there's the, the, the black guy, and I feel bad just calling the black guy, but <laughs> the black gay guy. <laughs> but um, him, I really liked him calling Rachel out. Um, uh, and, you know, his, like, this isn't your story to tell anyways this isn't your story to break let alone you're doing all of this stuff in the name of you know having a black suitor and all this stuff that it means but you're just making everything worse um i really appreciated him calling her on her bullshit because of course there's everybody has agendas but with the other characters there's a lot more interpersonal stuff that you need to take into account and with him there isn't at least as far as i'm concerned so right um, I, I thought it was nice to get a, a clearer perspective on her from him. Yeah. I thought that that really, because they were sort of like, you know, uh, conspirators last season as far as like trying to, you know, I, I enjoyed their dynamic last season. And this season with her promoted, um, I don't know that we've gotten as much of that. So I like hearing 
how he thinks, what he's seeing from her, and what he thinks of where she's at and how she's behaving. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I thought that was a nice little exchange. Um, you can tell him dancing around all the Black Lives Matter stuff. Um, oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Other things that I liked, uh, I liked getting some sense of what Yale's doing. I think that's a power move, a really uh, canny power move um, from her to, to, you know, get Jeremy to, to give her this, the scoop and get some proof so that she can get her own show, which is what I anticipate she will be pushing for. I anticipate she'll be pushing for, like, the Bachelorette version of Everlasting. Um, but we'll see. Um, what else? Uh, I enjoy Adam. Uh, I, I, I liked the, I thought they were true to his character, um, while like showing the more destructive elements of his, of his personality and the spoiled babiness and just whatever you want, you get kind of stuff while also having, he wasn't just season one premiere, Adam, he, he, there was some of that, but there was also who we saw him kind of be, become and certainly the show wanted to humanize him and, um, make, get us to like him a lot more in season one. So by the end, he's really a very empathetic figure. He was also some of, you know, just very pretty rich boy um, used to getting his way in assuming he'll get it again. Uh, so I, th- I think that they did a good job combining those things. So I was enjoying the stuff we got with Adam as well. Though I don't think him walking in on on Rachel and Coleman should have really changed anything for him based on the other stuff he was saying. Yeah. So I, I, I thought that was a bit of a stretch. But otherwise, I, I like the Adam stuff. I like most of the Quinn stuff, and I can't avoid talking about Black Lives Matter anymore, can I? No, this is all that we should be talking about anyway with this episode, which is fine yeah. for the most part, but then just yeah. completely and totally collapsed. Yeah, <laughs> I just like, it's it's really frustrating because I, I want to praise them for wanting to talk about stuff. Yeah. But... What are we supposed to be thinking? What are we supposed to be feeling from this? I feel like it was just very misjudged. Um, I don't think there's any sense of... I, I would like there to be more humanity for, in this in this very specific situation, the, the police officer, who shouldn't obviously have shot anyone on the show, but also shouldn't have been put in that situation. Um, and because uh, I, I think the show is plenty sympathetic for, you know... Uh, characters who got shot or our, our suitor who is not going to be able to walk probably is going to be paralyzed yeah. after after that in- interaction um, but I just I don't know I'm, I'm really at a loss with this season how, how did you feel about this episode oh I mean all the stuff that you outlined that was good and I'm not using like I'm using single air quotes not double air quotes um, but I'm, it was fine but by the end of the episode when Coleman and Rachel were just like this is the story this is what we wanted to tell this is important and I just went oh no 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 don't do don't do this don't do this don't do this oh gosh you guys are gonna do it and it's such a weird meta moment because I'm shouting it both at Quinn and I'm not Quinn Rachel and Coleman but I'm also shouting at the show (laughs) because the show's the show should know better than to do this just like Quinn gosh the fact that I keep calling Rachel Quinn is indicative of things, I guess. Um, but the fact that Rachel and Coleman 
also did this, they should also know better than to use two black men who are taking a car <laughs> to call the police to generate this kind of thing. This is a conversation we need to be having. And it's just like, guys, don't do this. You don't, you don't A, have the right to do this. B, you're manipulating the situation in a really terrible way that could go horribly, 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 horribly wrong. And guess what? It did go horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> There's also this presumption that if they call the police, Right, something terrible. It will go horse. Of course, they, they they will. All cops are terrible. All cops are racist, and they won't just understand that this is a complex a uh, situation or a setup, or that their information is faulty, or like there's just this assumption that all they need to do is they have two black guys with a nice car and two white ladies. So all they need to do is call the and cops. One, one of them super drunk. One of them super drunk. Yeah, all they need to do is call the cops, and the cops will just make this horrible thing happen even if they don't expect it to end in a shooting i mean that's offensive to me yeah and yeah it's just so deeply offensive and it's deeply just ill thought out and the worst part about it is is that even that the re the fallout from this is that rachel calls her mom and checks into a mental institution apparently or some sort of, like, rehabilitation center. The fallout is not the show is canceled because two producers got a guy shot <laughs> by the police. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the fallout, even though presumably, hopefully, that's something that's going to happen next week. But the preview was, we're going to hang out with Rachel in this rehabilitation center with her mom. No show. Nobody, no, nobody wants that. So I'm feeling deeply, deeply frustrated with whatever Unreal thinks it's wanting to do and say. Uh, mostly it's just, it's wanting to say white people are terrible and white television producers are really terrible. But then that just becomes a commentary on the show itself because the show itself decided to do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like... like you guys aren't saying anything interesting or significant with this. You're just doing this because it seemed like a fun, twisty idea to do that was topical, as opposed to doing something profound and thought-provoking with it, or even just something that, in a way, says something about the situation. And instead, you're just saying you're mobilizing this to develop this one character's storyline. I mean, it's borderline fridging, provided Romeo is alive or not. Which it seemed like he was, but um, it wasn't, like, super clear. Yeah. Yeah. He he is, or else, at least at the point that the episode ends, or else yeah. that would have been made abundantly clear. Yeah, yeah. Certainly. Yeah, I just don't, um... We're, we're disappointed this season, and frustrated a bit, but uh, there are still the bones of a really good show here, and... I mean, you just all you need to do is look at Friday Night Lights to see an example of a show that had a really great first season, sort of uh, lost track of what its strengths were and what sort of made it what it was um, in the second season and then came back for, to be even better in third, fourth, and fifth. So fingers crossed that Unreal is on the Friday Night Lights track, right? I know well, you're not a Friday Night Lights guy, but still. No, but I mean, I'm at least aware, cognizant enough of the discourse around that show to be like, 
Yeah, Friday Night... And I, I did watch the first episode of season two, so I'm familiar enough with what happened at the beginning of season two to go, well, that was a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's just that Unreal season two has felt like a string of not-so-great ideas capped off by a not-great idea. At, yeah. And that's kind of my problem is, is like... And you can maybe... It's not starting off with a bad idea. It just started making small, not great decisions. And now it's just made one really, really big bad decision. So are you optimistic that they can come back? Mm-hmm. Maybe after this season's done, they can come back. But I don't think there's much hope for salvaging this season, no. What about you? Uh, no, not, not me. Me. I don't, I don't think so either. Um, but uh, I do think there's some interesting things that he can do in these last two episodes. I think the conversation about the fact that Rachel keeps going, you've got this great guy, and she's so obsessed with this idea of finding definition in her life or in one's life through the relationship. And so when she sees Quinn, she's like, why are you even paying attention to any other part of your life? Because you've got a good guy. You've got a great guy now, so that's all that matters. I think that's really telling because I saw some people complaining about that, but I think that's actually very indicative of where she's at mm-hmm. and her character right now. Um, so I'm, I, the fact that Quinn reacts about as well as could be expected to, you know, her new beau saying, well, I, you, I, you need to know that I want to have kids. And I don't know if that's with you, but like, if we're getting serious, this is something that you need to know. Cause if that, if it's a deal breaker for you, then we should, you know, break. Um, I, I, so I think her reaction to that was very telling. And I know that this is not a show. It's going to end with either one of them going off into the sunset with their Prince Charming. So um, I'm, I'm sort of intrigued to see how they're going to end each of these storylines at the end of the season without having it just be a retread of last season. Yeah, I think that's a fair concern to have. But I'm also not entirely convinced that the show can exist after this, after the show everlasting can exist after this, after this season. That's true. So, yeah. We'll see. Yeah, I guess so. Okay. Well, what wins your week in genre and drama? <laughs> like there's a contest. Um, it's Mr. Greg all the way from Steven Universe this week. Steven! Yeah, yeah. totally Steven Universe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that wraps up our week, I guess. Yeah? But you have, a, you have a whole other week of maybe checking in from Comic-Con, which is very exciting. So everyone should look for that. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe by the time people are hearing this, maybe there's already stuff in the feed. Who knows? I certainly don't, even though I probably should. Um, <laughs> a few shout outs here. At the end of the episode, you can find a post for this episode up at theteleverse.org, the website for the podcast. You can also uh, email us at televerse at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of uh, Week TV. Um, you can find us on iTunes with an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. You can find us in Stitcher as well, and we would appreciate ratings and reviews in either location. So however you listen to podcasts, uh, let us know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook, like the page there, start up a conversation, and of course we're both on Twitter. I'm at the Televerse and Noel, you are? At Noel RK. And now we will take a break and uh, listen to a little bit of music, and then I'm going to come back with David Schwartz, the composer for Lady Dynamite, among other uh, several other properties, to talk about the, his compositional process and uh, the music for Lady Dynamite. So that was a lot of fun, and uh, we'll be hearing that in just a moment. Single, stylish, now. A lady's got to be ready for when it happens. And right now, it's happening. 
It's my life, and I'll do whatever it takes to get that sassafras feeling. Sassafras. Thank you. I'm a silly goose egg. Ooh! <laughs> I feel French. Oh, flowers for me. No thanks. Sometimes you just have to take a ride when life wants you to. Who knows what romance it will bring. It's not what's in your head, it's what's on it. Hair that's so shiny and foam. Can you blame them for looking? No time to pay. <laughs> We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalzik, and this week I am very excited to say I'm joined by composer David Schwartz. David, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for asking me here. Um, listeners will know, of course, your work uh, from many of uh, many fantastic shows, including recent uh, shows that we've talked about on our podcast, Northern Exposure, which that's a great first TV gig to get, might I say. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think I was really lucky because it was the very first thing that I did and I wasn't doing composing. I'd done one very small movie before that and really only 25 people saw this movie because it didn't uh, really get out. So uh, Cheryl Block, who went on to become a producer of Northern Exposure, uh, called me. At that point, I should say that I had found my true calling having done this small movie that didn't get out and you know I had been a both a musician, a bass player, and a producer a little bit. And, you know, just sort of lucky to make a a small living in music. But now that I had done this one little film, I said, well, this is what I really want to do. So I tried really hard uh, (laughs) for the next year or so. And, you know, because I had no credits, didn't get much answer, you know, going out to people and trying to do that, which is always, you know, a hard thing to do. And that was the one time I said, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to be brave. I'm going to you know, uh, seek out rejection. But then after a year and a half, and I was pretty rejected at that point, <laughs> uh, I, I got a call from Cheryl Block, who I had met once, and I know she was a friend of the director of Skeeter's Wing, this little film I did that never made it out. She said, I saw Skeeter's Wing, and I really love the music. It's nothing like what we're looking for, but we have this show called North to, North to the Future, which was the working title of Northern Exposure. And she said... Uh, Everyone in town has tried this, and we don't like anything, which is definitely a scary statement. Yeah, that's what you want to hear, right? (laughs) Right. You've tried everybody else. We hated them. Your turn. So, uh, and, you know, I had no experience. So uh, she sent over a script via um, William Morris so that I knew it was the real deal. Uh, I had to really do something here. And I wrote the non-exposure theme, and it was strangely easy, and I still don't really understand that. You know, that sort of came out in, you know, in the way that songwriters describe, and I've certainly experienced it sometimes, but sometimes you just have to work hard, too, for different music. And, but I, I didn't have confidence in it because it didn't sound like what I thought was a TV theme. So I wrote a terrible TV theme and played that for her with really bad instincts. Go with your first instinct. <laughs> And I could see by her face, she truly hated it. <laughs> she was nice enough to say, do you have anything else? And I said, yeah, this is the first thing I wrote. And she liked it a lot. And at that point, you know, it was all, I don't know if it was all samples. I think I had brought in Luis, Luis Conte to play the Kungas on it. And maybe a friend of mine played uh, 
Mike Thompson played organ, uh, accordion on it, and I played the bass. Uh, and then she took it back to Josh Brandt, who created Northern Exposure. And I was told that he really liked it, but he also really liked this David Byrne uh, song from Talking Heads. Now I'm kind of like, well, okay, I did a good job. I'm like, you know, he's going to pick Talking Heads, <laughs> but he didn't. He he uh, loved my theme. It was before the show uh, was filmed. Uh, the the uh, the main title was filmed, so there was Morty the Moose had not been hired, as far as I knew. Certainly had not been filmed. And uh, so, you know, he fell in love with that piece. And when they called me up to congratulate me, I had the theme. Uh, I was very excited. But then I started to realize that, oh, they actually meant I was the composer for the show. And that was equally exciting, but, you know, way more scary because I had never really written to that kind of schedule or had to, you know, produce so much music. And it was amazing. Every week we did different music in Northern Exposure. So I feel like I was in school the seven years that we did that. And I think uh, in the first year, the seventh episode or eighth, I think it was the seventh, uh, I saw Josh Brand, you know, I'd gone to spot the music for that episode each week. And uh, he'd say, have you seen the show yet? I said, no, I'm just going to see it now. He said, well, it could be better. Can you get 150 guys in an orchestra and do that? <laughs> right, Western music. And I said, you know, Josh, I got to be honest, I've never done, you know, I played in orchestras, but I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> written for it and that's a lot of guys he said well just get as many as you can <laughs> and, and sometimes they don't really want the details they just want you to do it so uh i hired uh sandy de crescent the great orchestra contractor and uh, john williams engineer whose name is uh sean i can't remember sean's last name but he's amazing and you know it, it, i had all these amazing people but it also created great pressure because you know i had the sony scoring stage but i didn't have any music and it was due in less than a week. So I had to learn how to write, you know, for an orchestra. Luckily, it wasn't, you know, I think it was 10 minutes of music, which was about what I did on uh, Northern Exposure every week, which was then, I think, a lot compared to other shows. And now when you do a drama, it's often almost the length of the show. You know, if you have a 41-minute show, that's what an hour drama is, usually 41 or 42 minutes. And sometimes you'll be doing that much music. So in that way, things have changed. I was going to say, I don't imagine um, at this day and age that we get, you, a lot of composers have the wonderful problem of, would you please go hire 150 musicians? No, that, well, you know, there are some shows and I wish I was, had one of them. I don't these days that, you know, they really value an orchestra and, you know, and, uh, and, and that's a great thing because it could still be done. The budgets are really there, but that's not where they want to spend money. And uh, you know, most of the shows I've been doing recently have not really, I mean, if they require it, they require it for one or two cues, not for the whole thing. And yeah. I tend to write shows that I hope have an identity. People tell me they have an identity and they sound like me in some ways, even though hopefully they're also all different. But I tend to get the shows that require every kind of music known to man. Mm you know, uh, reggae, Christmas, old jazz, new jazz, uh, avant-garde classical music. I don't know. It just, I don't know if I encourage this, <laughs> but it's also great fun and, and, you know, a constant challenge to me, uh, you know, even in, you know, the latest project to come out, I'm working on two now, uh, Lady Dynamite, you know, it has a sound, but it also, you know, there's no rules that we can't go anywhere with it, which is, you know, both fun and, and challenging, I think. 
Well, I was going to say with Lady Dynamite, which is your most recent project, um, I'll also just mention quickly for our listeners' benefit, of course, there's Arrested Development. So we have a fantastic hour-long, um, I guess, comedy drama with Northern Exposure and one of the fa- uh, the very best, I would say, theme songs from that time period. I love the, the Northern Exposure theme. So good, good job on your first TV theme. As if the, the, the Emmy, was it Emmy or Grammy? Wasn't enough. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it was interesting because that year the show wasn't noticed. It was not nominated for anything. I didn't even know you could be nominated. <laughs> really, just like, don't fire me this week was my motto. And, and they were very nice. And, and uh, we had a great time. And they were all very musical people. So that was a great gift then. Uh, but I think in its second or third year, uh, uh, Roxanne LaPelle, who was then the head of Universal Television Music, called me up and said that she put it into consideration for nomination, this non-exposure theme for Grammy, because I guess there was a category that uh, best music from motion picture or TV. And I'm trying to remember, it was John Williams for Hook, um, Eric Clapton for Tears from Heaven, because that had been in, in a movie, um, the Mambo Kings and me, and none of us won. It was Alan Menken for I can't remember if it was Sleeping uh, Beauty and the Beast or wasn't the Lion King. But anyway, that was a category. So never has anyone been without fear or worry or nervousness going to an Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like, well, but that being said, you know, when they start calling your name, I know I still get nervous, even though I knew, you know, like one of those other guys had to win unless they all canceled the self out. and They got the guy from the slightly known TV show, but I didn't win. And, uh, but it was a fantastic experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so you've got a fantastic hour long comedy or, uh, or drama, and then you've got Arrested Development, which as far as I'm concerned is one of the all time great comedies. Um, you also wrote the theme and did uh, music for the first couple episodes of Deadwood, which I consider one of the all time great dramas. Uh, so th- you've got a, a lot of really wonderful projects you've, uh, been able to, to do the music for and be involved with. Um, and then most recently Lady Dynamite, when you were listing off those different genres, I could think of music cues for each of those from Lady Dynamite. That's one of the things that really struck me about your score for, for the show is how diverse it is. Yeah. Uh, I, I again think that, and, and I must say that I came in with the opposite plan. I said, I want to do a show that has, you know, just this little tiny band or chamber orchestra that's going to be the same and it's going to have an identity and it's going to be big on themes. And the first episode I did, um, was really like that, but then it was early on in the process and we just kept on adding stuff to it where it sort of became, you know, hopefully it has a sound, but it also requires to do everything. And some of that, you know, was the producers and they chose a lot of wild temps, sometimes big orchestras, sometimes really wacky things. And like Arrested and a couple of the other shows I've done too, immediately I found myself as the songwriter for the show too, you know, Mm. Uh, which is often is, oh, we have no money for songs. You can do them. And, (laughs) or better yet, you know, can't we write something that's really original to our show and hysterical? And uh, Pam and the other writers of Lady Dynamite um, would send me lyrics. Uh, and and it's, it's funny because I've had this with other TV writers, you know. Um, most of them had had some, you know, they were in a band in high school or college or whatever. And they all idolize, you know, Bob Dylan style writers. So they'll send over like four pages of lyrics. Now, you know, the reality of a TV show is it, a song in a TV show is that you know, 40 seconds is pushing it, you know, to, to play a song in a TV show, especially a fast moving comedy like Lady Dynamite or Arrested Development. 
But they would just send over these pages of lyrics, and now I go like, well, do I do the practical thing and I do the first verse and one chorus, and that's all they'll play, or you know, do I stay up much later tonight and write four verses? You know? <laughs> I mean, the lyrics are there, but you still have to make a much longer track, and and you know, <clears throat> the practicalities of actually making the lyrics work to song are different, so they get changed in that process. But it was a lot of fun. I always chose to do the whole song. And now it's nice. We have sort of a soundtrack album of songs. It hasn't been released, but I hope it gets done. Yeah, it was lovely to see the uh, the songs, or I guess here the songs come up on the credits again. In every episode, there's uh, original music over the credits. Um, I think in all but one case, it's something featured earlier in the episode. But um, right. yeah, it's great to, to, you know, even just in the pilot, Sassafras Lady comes back at the end and then over the credits. It's nice to be able to hear more of it. Well, actually, you just, that's the best benefit that I didn't even say just now that like, that they recognized that the songs were really fun and they loved them. So they would use them as the end credit. So yeah. that's great. And it's also nice that Netflix, do they now? Do they play end credits? Or do, does it just automatically go to the next episode before it gets through it? Because on networks, end credits are not heard in the United States usually, but heard in other countries. Netflix, normally I love that they do this, but they as soon as the credits start, they start a countdown to just jump to the next episode. <laughs> right. And you on most shows... something the end of it, yeah. Yeah, most shows that's great, but less so with Lady Dynamite, because I wanted to hear more of these songs. Uh, I was going to ask how, how you got in, involved with Lady Dynamite in the first place, and um, when did the... How did you become involved in the process of, like, just the decision to have this be such a music-heavy show i mean it's not the runtime of each episode isn't necessarily there's a lot of space there's a lot of use of silence but a lot of music when the music yeah there's still a lot of music uh i think you know there's some similarities in arrested development and that choke definitely came from mitch Hurwitz, the creator of arrested development who was an executive producer on lady dynamite uh, but Pam Brady was the day-to-day person that, you know, I had most of my creative discussions with. Uh, Mitch was there uh, on the first episode. He actually directed that one. And, uh, you know, if Mitch is in the room and you're discussing interior design or gardening, he's got incredible creative ideas that you'd want. <laughs> because just everything he thinks is super creative and super funny. And uh, <clears throat> it's actually funny because he built a house not far from me new house and this is while we're doing arrested development and we had become good friends by that time so he would invite me over to the site of the house building and he would like take my ideas and then tell them to the architect or the carpenter which just frightened the wits out of me you know it's like well you know what if (laughs) adversely affects the structure of the house but uh he just likes creativity so we work together that well and then with lady dynamite he introduced me to pam who was the showrunner and I guess she liked my music and thought we could make it work. And everybody had ideas. And, and again, you know, I came in thinking it was going to be more of a contained score and less music. And very often at the beginning in any project, they're always going to say, well, you know, we have it all here. We don't need a lot of music. But something happens and, and you know, they see what it does. They like it. Sometimes I'm on the side of having less. I'd say, that, you know, like we can stop this here. We don't really need this to go into this scene. But they really like it. And, you know, maybe that they've heard it with temp for a long time or heard it with nothing for a long time and music is special. But, you know, they tempt a lot of scenes. Their editors were very creative with music. So that would, you know, add to the variety of music that we did. And um, Pam also would 
create, I'm talking about Pam for Lady Dynamite. One of her big things about the show was sort of creating these little mini movie scenes. Uh, I'm thinking of Pirates of the Caribbean and this, they're having auditions and mm -hmm. each actor comes in looking exactly like Johnny Depp. I, I don't know if you remember that scene, but yeah. you know, and, and the joke is, you know, these actors, you're looking at this desk and these different Johnny Depps keep on walking in. But, you know, um, she really wanted something that sounded like that, which is always a really tough challenge because you can't make it so close that, you know, you're <coughs> taking someone else's work and you want it to be, you know, a parody and an homage. And so, you know, that's the kind of things that would involve a big orchestral mock-up in our case because we didn't have a big orchestra. Hmm. Well, and that scene, of course, the the delightful punchline of it as far as I'm concerned is you got this this very adventurous music underneath and the Captain Jacks keep walking in and meanwhile in the next room Bruce is just like ready to kill himself and just, oh, yeah. oh, just in agony and so the <laughs> the counterpoint of the scoring with with Bruce's wails of agony in the next room was highly entertaining as far as I was concerned um and, and, and I know that you were saying um for this show you ended up in a different um approach than maybe you were expecting for your next project with a lot more uh, a lot of diversity of styles i mean you've got the the caribbean feel for the zwim and um and we just were mentioning the more orchestral adventure feel for um for that scene with the captain jacks you've got cabaret with blossom all this different stuff but i still was hearing a lot of of thematic unity to the to these different storylines, so particularly something like like the Duluth scenes with the the, the I guess I call it, was calling it in my notes the Duluth melody that right. sort of pops up each time we get that title card and um, sticking more to bluegrass or folk or country feels for those scenes as compared to the past and present. So for me watching it, I still uh, you know or the the um, the minor arpeggiating strings that we get pretty much every time Karen Grisham the uh, <laughs> the agent is. Yeah pushing Maria towards uh, mania. Um, so for me, there was still a lot of thematic unity in the scoring. Great. Well, I say yay to that because I'm, I'm always hoping it gets through. And <laughs> it's it's hard to see it from the outside. Even, you know, the stuff you're telling me now, I'm going, oh, yeah, that was such a great scene. And, you know, it's like it's so intense. And we were doing multiple episodes a week. And, you know, it's sort of crazy. So your memory, you know, gets pushed to the back there as you uh, get new stuff. And I, I've been doing two shows since then. But yeah, uh, I, I think those are really good observations, and 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 that's you know a goal to make sort of both work. The the Duluth thing, which actually there is a, one of those themes, is actually called Duluth. But you know it was very hard at first. It was a real issue that you know it takes place in three places and three different timelines. You know, and there's present and slightly in the future. That was the hardest because we we sort of made arbitrary rules that I can't even remember now that were like oh well. This would have happened three years ago musically, <laughs> and really is no in in the real world real difference there. Uh, so we had to sort of like don't play a piece that's from the yet undefined a few years ago and now and and vice versa. But Duluth and Minnesota was like I don't know I just had this thought and it seemed funny to me before I tried it was that it would just sort sort of sound like Appalachia, mm -hmm. and I started with just banjos and and dulcimers and mandolins and after a while I think I added a few trombones and, and a tuba and, and uh, you know, the upright bass, which is one of my instruments. And it just, it played great against her family, which were, they were, you know, so provincial and so sweet and loved her in such a way. I, I love those scenes. And I think, 
yeah, there's that trick of like, here's someone who in actuality has had real uh, mental issues and talks about it freely. And yet, yeah, I, I think the way the show dealt with that, you know, it, it, it's really one of the things I love about Lady Dynamite. Absolutely. And the, uh, I mean, talking about that Appalachian feel, I was keying into the banjo so yeah. much in those Duluth scenes and really loved what that brought to the those scenes and what you're saying about the the family, the feel of the family. Because that's the kind of stuff that, I mean, I'm a musician, I'm a violinist, so I'm going to be analyzing this stuff while that, whether I want to or not when I'm <laughs> watching television. I can't really escape it. But, um, but I think even people who are less uh, keyed into the specifics of the scoring and a show like this are going to feel that difference. So even if for some reason they don't key into the blue hue, you know, blue gray hue of, of the Duluth scenes <clears throat> or, or the hairstyles, you know, for, for Maria, but hearing that, having that um, musical voice for that time period just helps keep everything straight. Cause this is a show that would be very easy for it to get confusing with all the time jumps and all of the, even just within the time period of Duluth, there's different time jumps. Um, as you go through the series. So I, I don't know, I think it works really effectively to to get that sense of, of family and of, you know, away from the glitz and glamour, shall we say, of Hollywood. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, that's nice to hear. Um, and what you're saying was really interesting to me too. It's like, I was so new to scoring that when I started for years, I still didn't have that problem of listening to the music like someone who does it. I would realize afterwards, oh, I like the music for this movie or, you know, what was the music in this movie? I think it was good. Now, like you, I share that, you know, I'm analyzing it as it happened. <laughs> if a movie's great enough, I will be distracted enough to, you know, then want to go back and hear what the music was. Uh, the, and then there's the other side of that question, too, is uh, a friend of mine once proposed to me, don't you wish you could hear your music as someone else, your own music that you write, you know, because... You know, I, I can hear it and I sort of hear what I went through at the time. And if I get far enough away, I have a sense, but it would be great to be able to hear your music as someone else. We need an app for that. <laughs> Even just uh, hear what you've written without also hearing in your head all the stuff that doesn't come through in the mix or continued like three seconds after they cut. Um, I, I imagine that could be frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's even more of like just like you're hearing it for the first time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you've written a piece of music, you've heard it a couple hundred times at the minimum and note by note, and you might remember what you changed or what somebody liked or didn't like. And there's just the immediate emotional reaction that you have when you hear a music. And, and that's the greatest part of this job. You put music against picture and even if you're writing it, it surprises you. But to be able to hear it like that for the first time would be a gift. And also, you know, like to go back to the non-exposure theme, I, I credit that to ignorance and I'm not, I'm not being falsely modest but I just didn't know how to do the job and something wonderful came out you know from that point on I learned more and more and then in a way even though you're way more competent and you have craft to rely on you can only do something for the first time once and that's different you know absolutely um, I wanted to ask another question about uh, time periods in, in Lady Dynamite because uh, one of the scoring themes that I got the biggest kick out of was the, I don't know if this is what you're going for, but I, for me it was like a 90s saxophone uh, jazz thing for, um, especially it comes up a bunch with with Jack in, in Jack and Diane. 
Yeah, that, that, that was really funny. Uh, yeah, just to get like, you know, that sort of R&B sexy sex theme and, you know, really romantic. And, you know, I, I guess I don't do straight, I don't get to do straight romance. I'd like to very often. I, I've done a few little movies that had it, but, but to do that, it's just really fun and it's over the top. And uh, maybe Jesse, who's right here, what was the, there was one of those themes with the R&B sax that we just kept on repeating, and that was that was like a Mitch idea. It would be really funny if just suddenly yeah. this guy sax just keeps just, annoying and annoying. just yeah. <laughs> as he's the saxophone player in the record, you know, it's sort of breaking the fourth wall in a way, just starts playing the same phrase and more annoying and annoying. And, uh, you know, we tried to pull that off in, in one of those love scenes. Yeah. And, you know, her relationships are so the antithesis of real romance, and it's always kind of setting her up because... Uh, Maria always believes it, that this is it, you know, mm. as, you know, these very obviously flawed men that she is dating at any time, you know. But, well, cause, yeah, because yeah. that music comes back with Richard and with Shane and Jack. We don't get it for Graham in the past. Right. And we don't really get it for Scott in the in the present. And so I, I didn't know if that was an intentional let's keep it in the present and that's why it's not with Graham or it's just the fact that it's with Graham in the past, the Dean Cain character and with Scott in the, in the present, those are the more substantive relationships. And so that's why we don't get the ridiculous, but delightful sax music for them. I'm not sure if that was a rule of the time errors or not, probably, but I, I'm not sure whether we actually had that discussion in the last six episodes of Lady Dynamite. We were doing kind of, well, we weren't doing three a week, but because of people's different schedules, we would spot three at the same time on one day, which is a crazy exhausting day. You know, if you spend two hours per show and, it, you know, it's not a 12 hour work day, but it, it's a lot of details to keep in your head. And that's way. And, you know, we'd go back and I think we'd record what all the producers and the editors were saying and make notes. But when you're writing under extreme time pressure, don't usually go back let's listen to that um for our recording we <laughs> although the music editors actually got good enough to put like and they said this and, and put a link so we could get to that recording and, and hear it at that moment so that helped oh, nice um that's yeah that's that's intriguing i can't imagine like listening to interviews and reading interviews with different um showrunners and and music editors and composers like yourself i just can't imagine the production schedule of one episode a week let alone three that is crazy talk to me so it, yeah it is and i i tried to uh <laughs> talk sensibly but i realized this is the way it's gonna go and that's oh. what we did uh you know um Producers are often, in this case, um, like their editors are their right-hand men or women, and uh, they're very dependent on it. And I I totally understand that if you have a team and and you talk it back and forth. And so the editors have a lot to say in, you know, the way the music gets shaped. And I think what was happening with Lady Dynamite, if I remember correctly, the editors were done. So they were closing up that office and they wanted to spot the remaining shows, even though we had way more time, not a tremendous amount, it's still very compressed, you know, for the music team, which is uh, me and the music editors and the producers. Uh, you know, in reality, the editors were part of the music team, so we spotted with them. So, so that's what sort of creates one way that those schedules can happen. But you always think, well, we're not going to get this. It's not possible, but that's really... It has to happen. So one way or other, you make it work, you know. Yeah. 
I really was enjoying the way the score functioned as horror or suspense mm. all the time, constant, just like stings to go with a character popping up out of nowhere or children sting <laughs> um, throughout. Is that something that it comes in the editing? Is that just like compose uh, well, one or two horror stings and just let them keep adding it in? Sometimes, and then sometimes they'd say, you want to use this old horror sting in the meeting, and I'd say, no, that's not going to work. i got to write a new one there. So it was a combination of all those different methods. And um, I, I think myself included, a lot of composers are hesitant to do stings, but it was such a ridiculous show, and when we used them, it made us laugh. So I think, and this is very true of Arrested Development, you know, Story and character and continuity are all very important, but if you can make someone laugh, you know, in any way, certainly with music, uh, without, you know, hitting them on the head with the obvious, well, then that's the way they're going to go. They're going to, you know, because great comic writers and producers recognize that. And, you know, there's a lot of comedies now that are very popular that aren't like laugh out loud kind of comedies, you know. I think these are more the laugh out loud, you know, where the intention is really let's get people laughing, even when they approach very serious subjects. Um, there's a lot of uh, comedies that are popular right now, and, and some of them are my favorite shows. That the main thing I think most people feel is anxiety, you know? mm -hmm. <laughs> which is funny, but that's a, a modern day comedy in, in a lot of cases. Yeah. Well, and there's plenty of that in certain points of, of Lady Dynamite as well. well Lady but... Dynamite definitely has anxiety. Yeah. But the, then when the laughs come, they are much appreciated because we need a moment to recover from things like, you know, what happens with Blossom towards the end of, of the, the series, um, which I won't spoil in case some of our listeners have not yet checked out the series, in which case I'm a little puzzled why they're still listening. Um, they should go watch it and then come back. But... Uh, idea. <laughs> But watch yeah, twice. I think yeah. you need to watch it twice. Yeah, yes, it, absolutely. Because the second time through, everything clicks even more. Um, yeah, I totally agree. I was getting a lot of '70s from the scoring. Obviously, there's the opening, you know, the credits. Uh, but is, is I don't know if that's just because you know I'm a classical musician, so my vocabulary for popular music is laughable. Um, so I don't know if that is was a deliberate. Uh, feel for the entire series or just uh, something that uh, maybe I'm keying into different instrumentation but um, what where did I don't know if you know where did the the, the feel for that come from with the, with the uh, theme that's song interesting, yeah because I, I don't really think of it that way but of course it is but the uh, well I started writing some 70s stuff I think originally for Minnesota because I think there had been initial discussions that that's that would be the 70s but it didn't really work for that, and the Appalachian stuff did. But I had we had these pieces, and I around so I, some of them started sneaking in. And the theme, Mitch had sent me some really I can't remember what it was, but it was strange Japanese animated uh, music, and it was really crazy. So it, it had modern dance elements, but also it was sort of a big band, but wild and crazy. And Mitch always loves density, or at least historically he has, and the rest of the development theme is really dense. And um, I had just switched to uh, Kraft Engel, who are my management, and Richard Kraft's very inspiring, a super music fan, and he was just saying about, like, well, you know, if you have a short main title, write a really long one. And Mitch sort of said the same thing. He said, why don't we, 
you know, the original idea was that we were going to write this really long main title and all the music was going to come from it. That didn't happen at all, but it did give me a lot of inspiration. So I think the main title for Arrested Development I wrote is about a minute or maybe a little over it, and it has all these different sections in it. And that did help in a way, and it just sort of morphed into something else as we added more and more on top of it. And then um, we came up, or Mitch and Pam came up with the idea of Maria just sort of sort of rap singing on top of it. And there's many takes, and they're all hysterical. And uh, so that was another fun element, but more to fit in there sonically as a musician. You know, part of me wanted to be like, let's not have people singing, you know. <laughs> but when I heard it, it was really right. It was great. And uh, and I wanted to do the show did not have a budget for musicians period, and so it's a big band that's in there with extra instrumentation. So every time a musician came through my studio, whether we were working on Arrested or something else, I mean on Lady Dynamite or something else, I said, "Oh yeah, and here can you play all the saxes? Because I'm going to have you be the sax." <laughs> one guy, I think we tortured because he went everywhere from. Uh, playing piccolo and flute to uh, baritone sax and all on that theme. So it's, and, then, and then, you know, I had a brass guy come through and I sort of did the same to him and I played the upright bass and uh, I sent it out to my friend, the J great Jay Belrose, to play drums. So, and that's something I did more on this show than I've ever done before, is sending it out to musicians when there wasn't time or it helped budget-wise to get them paid, um, to send it out. And... It can work. I, I still think I prefer to have everybody in the room. That's my, you know, it's old school, but I, it's what I like to do. Mm -hmm. Well, when you talk about the um, the singers and the cast, I mean, obviously we get songs like Mouthful of Semen uh -huh. <laughs> with Melamed um, singing that um, and, and the song with, with Bert. Um, were those just, uh, I'm guessing those were not recorded live or anything, but done recorded separately and then then synced this, this is sort of a look into the sausage factory maybe you don't want to know how they're done but <laughs> the, uh it, it's amazing because usually i'm working so much that you know my method has always been i'm not a singer i'm a terrible singer you'll hear my voice in the background of most of these things but you don't hear me singing lead unless it's you know uh i i think on arrested development i did yellow boat and stuff like that because i can sort of do a terrible Ringo kind of sound, but <laughs> vocally. Uh, but uh, what I would do if I, if I knew I had to write a song is start the songwriting session at nine or 10 o'clock. So after I've done a full day of scoring, I would hope that the co-writer would come in and I'd get a blast of adrenaline by working with somebody else. And then we would write and almost finish all the recording of that that night. So somebody had to be a great singer. So I found uh, co-writers, Gabriel Mann, and my daughter, Lucy Schwartz, who's incredible. Um, and in Lady Dynamite, a lot of it was Julian Coriel, who's a force. And so we'd write a song very quickly, record the lead vocals, record all the instruments that we could play ourselves. And then the next day, if players were coming by, add to it. So, um, so it wasn't, you know, sometimes things would be done at the same time, but two or three of us would write the song. So we would also play the instruments on it and do the vocals. So, you know, you might end at two in the morning and then um, if I had my session guitars come by, Julian's a fantastic guitarist, so we never needed anyone else to play guitar. And uh, Lucy is a great keyboard player and, you know, I can play a bunch of different stuff to various levels of proficiency. So um, 
yeah, that's sort of the way they went down very fast. And that makes it fun because you, you, you don't second guess, you know, you just go for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, uh, some of our, uh, lyric team, uh, and it's not like we'd all be simultaneously writing lyrics and music and kind of disagree, but never, it never got personal. You know, we just say like, that sucks and move on to something else. But, uh, Lucy, my daughter, who is, uh, fantastic songwriter at home right she had a, a lot of problems with touch the children <laughs> and i even did i guess we're um more square than pam you know who sent us those lyrics and i said pam i feel funny like you know having an email with a subject touch the children i don't know <laughs> and she says no just make it as rude as you can and i said well what if we did it sort of like we are the world and then it would be funny you know <laughs> and it, it, she's right. It is funny. Uh, uh, actually, don't credit Lucy for it. She doesn't want to be. I just remember. <laughs> she's she's a, a throwback in a way. But uh, so, yeah, you don't mention her on that. But but yeah, those are the ways those songs came down. And uh, either we had lyrics from the writers or we didn't. We do them ourselves. And the rest of it, it's usually less often did we get. Uh, lyrics from Mitch. It's more, more came from me and whoever I was co-writing. And it's just tremendous fun to do that. Yeah. Well, just the, the music videos that we get through the series just feel very organic. Like how you just watching it feels like they had to have had the song before they shot the videos that was going with it, but not necessarily. That's the magic of editing, uh, I suppose. Um, but it it all seems. Actually, most of the time we wrote beforehand. Oh, okay. That, that does make more sense then. So okay. if they're going to be shooting some letters like Minnesota Rockin', uh, which is the family band, Maria's family band in the garage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in that scene, they play, you know, with our tracks or, you know, I think they totally replaced it. And people like Mary Kay plays, plays her mom and she, she came over for guitar lessons. She's a very dedicated actress <laughs> or actor, as they say now. And, you know, and then in the end, they really play our track of it. Uh, so, so in that case, they knew they were going to need that. And even for, um, for touch the children, even though it wasn't really being performed, they wanted it beforehand, which is often good because if it's before we're actually working on the scoring, which is the last minute, it's something you can do and get that done at that time. I was going to say that the Bamford family bam, bammed, uh was surprisingly very credible for a week of rehearsal. Just the physicality of everyone. I was I, I was pretty impressed by the fictional characters for that. I, I, I got a big kick out of it to see it. It's so great because you don't imagine you write something and then, you know, they say you're going to do this. But when you really see it, it's great. And they're such what, what a great team of actors they are. So that's fantastic. Well, well and, and at least from my eyes watching it. it so it looks to me pretty clearly like uh, Maria Bamford has years of experience playing the violin from the yeah. pieces that she plays. Uh, yeah. I'm guessing that oh, she, her... does. she does. She actually plays the violin, which surprised me. I didn't know it until I saw it, you know, when I first saw that episode. Yeah. So, wow. She's, you know, because I've had experiences like going back to Northern Exposure, we had to have In Northern Exposure. There was um, a character who played a violinist who was uh, stalking Maurice for his violins, for, for a Guarneri violin. I don't know if you remember this episode. Uh, Maurice wanted to inv- invest in violins, right? And he heard yeah. Guarneri was one of the good guys. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> he's, he's pretty good. He's pretty good. He's right? kind of good. So, one uh, of the, yeah. 
Guarneri. It might have been a Strad, but I think it was Guarneri, and I thought that's a good touch by the writers that they didn't go for Yeah, the that they didn't go for the Strad. I remember uh, that, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he, 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 call, he gets the concertmaster of the Seattle Symphony to come up and sort of validate that this is a good axe. And, uh, and the guy totally falls in love with the instrument and steals it from Maurice. And then for like a whole arc, maybe eight episodes, he was always in the woods playing this violin. And as a violinist, I'll tell you the story. But uh, so the producers were really very expert in, in classical music. Um, Andy Schneider, who was one of the producers, his first job, I think, coming out of college was he spoke fluent Russian and he would take all the great Russian violinist soloists who played across America, you know, and he would take them on tour and interpret. So he was, he was uh, a great guy, but he knew a lot more than I did about uh, that kind of classical music. So they would suggest great solo violin pieces. And I would call Alex Traeger, who was then the sitting concertmaster of the LA Phil. And he would come in with his Stradivari. He actually had, I'll tell you, I don't know if this will be interesting to your audience, but he had two Stradivarius that belonged to the LA Phil. The first was the Jack Benny Strad. Mm -hmm. And then I think he went from assistant concertmaster or associate to actual concertmaster before they got their current guy. And um, so he brought in the Duke of something strat. And it was really a lot better. And he like, he said that himself, you know, so it was interesting to have, you know, within a week's period, have two different Stradivarius violins in there. And he would play gorgeously. And I always felt like, well, can I say Alex do it again? Because he was a very <laughs> imposing Russian, you know. And in the last episode of that arc, the character, the actor who you know, tried very hard to play convincing violin on screen, um, gets caught and he's sent to the mental institution, the sort of crazy bin in Alaska. And in the very last scene, you see him playing, the closing scene is that he's playing in, in, in the, um, the mental hospital jug band. And he's supposed to be playing Turkey in the Straw. And one of the producers of the show came to the session as, he, as was the case then and never now, <laughs> but, uh, and he just kept on saying to me, can we hear him play Turkey in the Straw? I got to go get him to play Turkey in the Straw. I said, I'm not getting this guy to play Turkey in the Straw. I'll get a great bluegrass violinist, you know? And he says, I thought you said this guy's the best. In town. <laughs> so I said, yeah, he is. He's the best classical music violinist in LA at the moment. And he says, well, can he do it? I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was so uncomfortable, and finally, he just wouldn't give it. Martin, who's wonderful and very musical himself, uh, said, uh, ask him. So I, I politely go into the room, and I say, Alex, can you play Turkey in the Straw? And he obviously didn't know, and he says, uh, you write it out, I play it. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we do that, and uh, let's say this. It wasn't the greatest Turkey in the Straw that anyone's ever heard, and... Uh, the creator of the show, uh, Josh Brand, called me up and uh, said, why does Turkish Straw sound like this? I said, because it should be played by a bluegrass musician. So I got Byron Berline, who is, you know, one of the all-time greats. And he says, you don't really want to do Turkey in the Straw. You know, let's do Cabbage Pants. Or he had, like, five other great, and, and I think we sent a bunch, and I don't remember which one we used. But it was a real lesson in saying, and, mm -hmm. you know, I think now, I don't know, you're a young violinist, but... Now there's so many who can play in any genre, and I love that, you know. That mm -hmm. They can play like Stefan Grappelli, or they can play bluegrass, or Irish music, or uh, 
Armenian music or, you know, it's just really great. And then, you know, there was, there was a lot of like, well, I don't improvise. Can you write it out? You know, and yeah. this wasn't even improvising, but you know, it, it was more divided. Now I think because musicians have to do so much more to make a living that, you know, and I think that they teach that in schools, you know, it's, it's more varied now. A long yeah. answer too. I don't even remember what the original question was, but it, we, we went into a violin sub story there. But that was delightful. And yeah, expecting a world-class classical musician to also be a world-class bluegrass musician. Yeah, that, that's not the first time I've heard that uh, well, assumption. There, there are a number in L.A. now yeah. who you can call on and they'll be convincing and on either side and they play jazz too. So that's nice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, that's that's. I enjoyed that tremendously. Thank you. <laughs> One of the things I enjoyed about to go back you know, rewind 10 minutes. Um, Maria plays her own violin uh, and then doesn't even pretend to play the guitar uh, right. in her song with Bert, which I thought was wonderful. Um, right. Like, that's, that's, that's really true. Good observation. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't even like, and like she's playing about as much as the dog is. Yeah. And yeah. I think it works beautifully. Um, do you have, I mean, it, this is a mean question to ask. It's asking you to choose between your babies, but do you have a favorite song or sequence from Lady Dynamite that has really stuck with you? Um, Unfortunately, nothing sticks. Uh, <laughs> goes by so fast. I mean, I, I first of all, I, you know, because I love composing, and I love that I can do it on my own by myself. But conversely, I love the songs because other people come in, and it's a fresh idea, and and we can sort of work together, and that's inspiring. Um, I thought the theme was really great, and also the opening song, which is um, "Sassy Sassafras Lady." Mm-hmm. That wasn't easy. It was actually written as Sassafras Lady, which is a totally different song. And that one was written with Julian Coriel, whose dad is Larry Coriel, and he has the same kind of talents, uh, except that Julian is just one of the greatest singers that I know. And, uh, and he wrote this song with me, and it was a very sophisticated song with just mouthfuls and mouthfuls of lyrics and they loved it but when they put it next to the voiceover and the sound effects it was just too much and they asked me if i could take out most of the lyrics and to me it just didn't really work that way so i wrote another one this one just by myself which is the opening song which is sassy sassafras lady as opposed to sassafras lady so (laughs) both of those were great fun and uh so that one's kind of special to me just what we went through and that it worked out and sounds great and and uh it's just like that great opening montage is a fun bit that in my scoring world, I don't usually get two minutes of, you know, that's mostly music, even though I'm still, there's a lot of dialogue and sound effects in that. I never get that helicopter shot over LA, uh, you know, (laughs) these are your four seconds or whatever. And I, you'll never see me doing a show with a lawyer or a doctor, uh, which I would like to do because those shows last a long time and they're fun. Yeah. I, I tend to get shows with the devil, westerns, or outrageous comedies. Well, though, and those are pretty fun. I enjoyed Brimstone yeah, no. uh, very much when it was on. I'm one of the three people who watched it, but it, I had a lot of fun with it. So you know, the don't knock the devil shows. Maybe uh, the... I love the devil shows. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's so weird the way a career develops, you know. And I think uh, if there's a list someplace, which there probably is, 
that, you know, it's like when there's kind of smart television that's both funny, but also has dramatic moments and sort of out of the box, I get that call. I'd like to be called for, you know, all those CSIs. But the yeah. guys who do it do a great job because <laughs> I, I, I'd be, you know, be in a different financial situation. But uh, I'm not complaining. Uh, you know, if I, if I were to have one thing that people call for me, it's for smart, intelligent stuff that usually involves humor. That's great. I, I, I really am hoping to get uh, a drama or something of great beauty. That would be I, I like to mix it up. So that's that's fun when it does go that way. Absolutely. Um, well, I, you've been so generous with your time. Um, uh, thank you so much for talking with me today. Um, I wanted to mention, I would be remiss if I did not mention a couple of the, the song track choices on Lady Dynamite. Hungry Town, Rose or the Briar is just gorgeous. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know if that is a choice that you make or oh. that's the music editors. Um, no. I don't know. I, I think I think the actual editors, that one. Okay. I'm really not sure. Uh put that in there and then we, we really almost had no budget to buy a song or anything else. But I think that one was affordable. And then on that note, we have the, I don't know what I'm doing, which oh. ends every episode. So how does that work? Is that where some of the budget goes or is that because yeah, they, because that was found at the very beginning and I forget whether it was Pam or Mitch, but it just was so perfect for to the show and to end it that way. And then I'd have the end title it was great, you know, and it would always surprise me because I'd be writing right up into that minute, you know, and then it would come on and the temp. I said, oh, yeah, we got this. So it's a very good song. I love Dean Martin. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hope that song has a real life because of Lady Dynamite. Yeah. Um, and uh, like I said, I need to take the opportunity to, I guess uh, I will say a thank you, but also chastise you for Getaway from uh-huh. Arrested Development because it will never leave my brain. That's, um, that's, so. that's our goal in life, you know. <laughs> um, and so, is there anything that you'd like to to plug? Any any um, upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? I have two coming out fairly shortly, even though one I haven't started on yet. Uh, <laughs> details, details. Uh, Better late than never for NBC is the first time I've done reality, and I was hired to write the picture, but it ended up being more of a reality show, which was a different kind of fun. And it's Henry Winkler and William Shatner and George Foreman and Terry Bradshaw, and it comes out in a month. And that's all I'm going to say about it, but I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, a really cool show that I did the pilot for for NBC is coming out in September, and it's called The Good Place, and it's produced by Mike Scher. And it's a very different kind of show than I've ever done in comedy, and the music is really different, and I love when it's really different like that, so that's really fun. And, you know, we did that first episode. We knew already that we were picked up, which I think gave us a great, you know, we weren't in that pilot live-or-die mentality. Um, and uh, I just found out a few minutes ago I'm going tomorrow to start it, so that's the kind of notice we get. <laughs> and I said, sure. And it's got uh, Kristen Bell and Ted Danson and... It takes place in the good place when that's the name of the show, which is sort of heaven. Yeah. That's all I can say about that one. But you, you can say like on NBC now they're peppering it with promos, which is like it's always a weird feeling as a composer. And I've experienced this many times, you know, they're you know playing these promos that make you think it's happening every second and you haven't started yet. It's, <laughs> it's very scary. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I've been through it enough times to know that we'll make it work. 
Well, thank you again so much for for giving us some of your time today, David. And uh, listeners, absolutely um, should go check out uh, your 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 back catalog because there's a lot of really fun shows in there uh, that we haven't even like. I was a big fan of Benched and was very sad when it got canceled. So, oh yeah, uh, it was like, <laughs> yeah, I could never understand it. Like it just didn't get attention, but I thought it was a really yeah. funny show, and with, also with great people who have all gone on to do great things. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much. Uh, you know, I don't know why, because it's a still picture of you, uh, <laughs> Skype, and it says Kate there. And uh, I just hope you're smiling as much as your picture is. It's you know, the greatest smile. Oh, thank so, you. You know, I felt much funnier looking at your smile. <laughs> oh, good times. Well, um, we'll keep an eye out for The Good Place, and uh, I look forward to seeing what you compose next. So thank you once again, and uh, thank everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Bye-bye. Thank you.